electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the future of the rally following that incredible day for stocks. Can it really keep going until the end of the year and possibly beyond that? We discuss and debate it with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Steve Weiss, Jenny Harrington, and Lieutenant Jim Labenthal. He's a veteran of the United States Navy, as we always do, Jim. This is a tradition for us. On Veterans Day, we honor you. We honor all those who served. It's great to have you here. Scott, you're very gracious. You and the network are always incredibly supportive, not only of veterans, but of active duty military, and that's awesome. Thank you. All right, we have a special show uh, coming up today. Let's begin, though, with the markets. Take a check on where we stand today. You heard uh, bond markets close for Veterans Day. Uh, Obviously, the FTX bankruptcy that we learned this morning is weighing a bit on sediment. Dow's down 230. We did have a massive day yesterday. Dollar's weaker again. S&P's good for a few points. NASDAQ's up three quarters of a percent. 381's the yield on the 10-year note. Tom Lee today, Steve Weiss calls that CPI uh, report a game changer. He says it supports a rally into the end of the year. We'll get to another very well-known investor in a minute who uh, thinks stocks can, can run. You must as well, based on the activity that you have today, which I see is rather substantial. You bought more Microsoft, Honeywell, Goldman, Bank of America, added Morgan Stanley, the XLF, Chevron, the Qs, United, and on and on. And I had GX. More bullish? Well, look, my my view has not changed uh, very much. I still think that earnings are going to come down significantly, far below what consensus is, which is 220 to 235. I'm looking at 200 next year. But you've got this window right now. It's a seasonal window. So, look, PPI will come out Monday. Uh, I don't think, even if it's more than consensus, I think the market will look past it on a knee-jerk reaction. But then we come to Powell in the middle of December. I think December 13th is when we get decisions. CPI right before that. Right, right. PPI is this Monday. Yeah, no, no, I know. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the next exactly. CPI comes out literally the oh, day yeah, before yeah, the yeah, Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Powell's going to put the kibosh in the market. So, look, my base case had been 50 basis points next meeting. I don't think that changes. But this is not what he wants to see. This is, uh, you know, whether it's the bond market or whether it's the equity market, they are monetary tools. And right, right now what you're seeing is some unraveling of what the Fed has done because of what bonds have done. Not today because they're closed, as you mentioned. So that's the concern. And the other issue is if the market does decide to keep going past that uh, Fed meeting, and I think there's a chance that it could until we get earnings, that keep in mind that that. At that point, they're buying deeper into a bear market, and I think it continues. But that case, that base case that inflation has peaked, and that base case that the, the, you know, the wolves have come out saying they're going to pivot, they're going to pivot Yeah, I know, again. but that's fine. But, 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 you, but you're, I don't, you're, your overall view doesn't have to change, if, but your shorter-term your shorter term view Absolutely. can change. Clear. You don't need to re-articulate why all the reasons that you're big-picture negative. You bought all these stocks. Obviously, you think the market can run 
for, right. for a decent amount of time, as does another person who's been negative looking for a 20 percent decline in stocks. That's Scott Minard. He was with me yesterday in overtime. I mean, he said this. I think the, the bear market is still solidly intact. Um, you know, I see this as, um, you know, a relief rally. I'm still of the opinion, look, I always say I like for the data to talk to me rather than for me to try to, you know, to predict the data. Um, but uh, so far, you know, I would just ride the seasonals here. Um, things are still, you know, fairly well valued and inflation is coming down. And uh, I think we are prone to uh, more downside surprises on inflation, which would be good for um, bond mar- the mar- bond market. And so, you know, I would say, you know, I would stay fully invested at this point. That's Scott Minard. He's been been decidedly negative on the market. He, too, like Weiss, thinks you could get a run into the beginning of the year. He has added exposure to high yield, longer dated credit. Um, But you are having more of the more negative people at least thinking that we can do something now because of that CPI print. Well, I feel like in a weird way, they're both making my argument. Now, I, I do not think that we're in a bear market right now. I don't think we're in a bull market. I think we are in a bottoming process. And I think it's a long, hard, consolidating bottoming process. Well, we've been in a bear and, market. I mean, let's... Okay, but we're not, in a bear we're not down 26% anymore. In fact, we're not even down over 20% anymore. So is that a bear market? And this is all where it gets into nuance and gray areas. But I would say if we're down 16% on the year, which is where we are right now, but we haven't broken the trend, though. We're still in a bear market. I mean, look, I'm not so, going to so, waste my time debating this okay, but issue so with you. But I think. I, think, I think it's a bottoming process, and you're going to have peaks and valleys. And when I was on a week or so ago and, and Frank was hosting, he said, do you believe this rally? And I think the same question could be asked of me today. Do I believe this rally? Well, sure, it happened. It's real. Well, do you believe do- it has more the possibility of going for weeks further? Weeks. No. And do I think it brings us back to 4,800 in a reasonable time period? No. But I think there's stuff to do because you're going to have in this bottoming process, you're going to have rallies, you're going to have troughs, you're just going to mess around. I bet you that we 4,800. I mean, who's saying 4,800? Why do we have to get back to new highs for this to be a legitimate move? Well, I mean, well, I don't know. What would you then consider it? So we're now up 10 percent off the bottom. So would you say that? A, I mean, can we get to 4,100 before we start talking about 4,800 or 4,200? Sure. I mean, the, that's considerably kind of, higher than where we are now. But you're kind of bringing up the whole point in this, is, which is quantifying all of these things is hard. So we, you could say, OK, great. We're up. What is it? 10 percent or 15 percent. Does that mean that we've had a bull market for the past couple of weeks? I don't think so. I just think we're in a hard market. And I'll bet you that we look back in a year from now, and it's continued to be hard with false starts and disappointments. But it doesn't mean that there's not stuff to do, which is exactly what Scott Minard's saying and what's exactly what Steve's done. You can make money. And by the way, you don't need to own the market. No, but you know? you're a seller, right? You've sold applied I sold materials. I don't stock. have a list of you buying anything. I haven't replaced that yet. And that brings up, a per- that's a perfect, you know, I think, analogy for how I feel about the market. Here's why we sold AMAT. We sold AMAT because right now, if you want a stock to work, you either need a reason for multiple expansion or you need earnings growth ahead. I think AMAT is probably at about peak earnings right now, and we kind of readjusted what we think the multiple should be. It's trading at 14 times right now. That's, that's exactly in line with its historical average. So I can look at this and say, earnings in this space are cyclical. I don't know if they'll earn $4 or $5 or $6 next year, but it's going to be lower than the $750. And I cannot make a case for multiple expansion. Therefore, at $100 a share, to us, AMAT is fully valued. Okay. 
Um, and I think that's kind of where we are with the market, okay. which is, to your point, if it's 220 or 230 of earnings, I can't tell you that we should get back to 21 times. I can't even make an argument for 19 times, which is why I think it's just kind of this icky, mushy place that we're in with fits and starts. Okay. Jim, Wolf Technicals, I mean, Wolf Research, they've been negative too. They see additional near-term upside. Uh, S&P could go to 4050 to 4100. What do you think? Uh, where, think what do you think about where we are? Do you think, like some do, that that CPI print was, in fact, a game changer for where we can go over the course of the next, let's call it, six weeks? I sure do, Scott. I sure do. Um, look, this whole year has been about the Fed raising rates in response to inflation. That's knocked earnings down. It's knocked multiples down. That all makes sense. What happens when the Fed pauses? Forget pivots. I'm not talking about that. When they're done, when they reach peak funds rate. All right. The market's then going to be looking forward six, nine months and saying, and this is important, OK, that next year is going to be a tale of two halves in the earnings picture. First off, we, we you know, I don't want to get ahead of my skis here. I will feel a lot better if December's CPI, excuse me, November's CPI, which comes out in December, confirms that CPI is solidly on a downward trend, okay? But yesterday mattered a lot because it lowers the peak Fed's fund rate, and it also puts in play that maybe by February 1st, the Fed is done with rate hikes. If that's the case, big if, okay? The first half of next year, earnings may stink, but the second half is probably going to look pretty good. Let me remind everybody, the Atlanta Fed currently has this quarter's GDP running at 4%. This is a strong economy. I don't even want to talk about the labor market. Okay. You you are using um, the opportunity uh, to buy stocks that have gotten pounded in your portfolio, like Paramount, like Cleveland Cliffs, um, Win. Now you know, forget what they've done in the last day or so. I'm, I'm ob- you're on. obviously happy about that. Mm-hmm. But the reasoning behind buying more of these, which you've been on the defensive about, sure. um, because you've had to be, is what. Yeah, it's simple and it dovetails with what I was just saying about if the Fed is going to peak out lower and sooner, big if, but I think that's a rational call after yesterday, then what that means is highly leveraged companies are going to rally on the prospects, not only of lower interest expense, which is the case, but in these cases, on the idea that the prospects and the probabilities of a recession are lower. You know, and I was just alluding to it, Scott, you know, I don't believe that we are absolutely going to have a recession next year. Maybe we will. I I, I mean, I acknowledge that. But this is a very strong economy. And these stocks have been hammered on the prospects of a recession that I just don't think has to happen, especially if the Fed isn't as aggressive as expected. All right. So Michael Hartnett over at Bank of America uh, says they are happy nibblers of new leadership of small cap industrials, resources, emerging market bonds, China, Japan, weak dollar plays. Uh, which is interesting because the dollar is weaker, and that has to be certainly considered a, a major part Weiss, of why stocks have been able to get some traction. How about, how about that idea, the, the small caps, some industrials, which you obviously agree with if you've got, you know, if you're willing to buy a Honeywell or if you want to even put it United in that category. Talk to me about what, what uh, Hartnett says at B of A. Yeah, uh, well, one part of what he says is easy, and that's China. I wouldn't touch China. Uh, the risks have not come down there. Stock prices have, but not down far enough. We don't have to go through all those reasons. I think they're pretty obvious. And when you've had the market come down as much as it has, why would you go to other markets when you can find value in this market? Now, whether that value comes to fruition in three years or as Jim's hoping in a year, which I doubt because you can't base anything on the Atlanta Fed because they're 
always too aggressive yeah, on the upside. Yeah, just throw it out. It doesn't fit with your thesis. Okay. Throw it out. <laughs> yeah, um, I will. Easy there, Forrest. Just take it easy. But, <laughs> uh, but, but in terms of nibbling, yeah, I mean, you know, small cap, when you're looking at the U.S., small caps have underperformed. Recently, they've outperformed. It's a good place to be because you don't have to worry as much about the dollar. Have supply chains easing and a lot of its financials, then you could do it. So as you saw, I added to Goldman, and I added to, uh, to B of A, and I bought Morgan Stanley. So I think you've got this period here where the market can move higher. But let's not forget, if you go to the gas pump, gas prices are up again. And getting inflation down, as we saw yesterday, I mean, that was just a massive overreaction and a lot of short covering. Mm-hmm. Look at Adobe. But you're still at ridiculously high levels of inflation. The battle is not the battle well, made one yesterday. The war is not. Of course, that's that, that was Icon's point yesterday uh, when I had him on in overtime. Uh, I want you to listen to what Carl Icon told me on that very note. I am still very uh, well, quite bearish on uh, what is going to happen. I, uh, a rally like this is, of course, very uh, dramatic, to say the least, very dramatic. But. You have them all the time in a bear market, and I still think we're in a bear market. I think that the Fed has to keep raising. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't, then it's going to be worse in the future anyway. They have to cure this inflation. Like in the 70s, you couldn't get rid of inflation. Inflation is a terrible thing. Once you have it, it's not like something that you just take a magic pill and get rid of it. All right, so that's Icon. He's hedged. He's short the S&P as a hedge. And one of the reasons he is, which I thought was uh, pretty interesting, is because the amount of tech that is part of the S&P 500, right? It's 20-something percent at this point. He thinks it's still too high. Mm-hmm. Jenny, take a stab at that one um, about, you know, this, this feeling of, of icons. Like, okay, you, you know, I get why the balloons are all out because of the CPI, but bigger picture, like Weiss thinks, it's still going to be messy because they're going to have to continue to raise interest rates, which they keep telling you they're going to do. Yeah. So I think I think he's right about tech being too high. And I think that's where we have there's opportunity in the market, but there's still there's still treacherous times ahead. I was actually kind of surprised that he said he's short the S&P. I'm like, why not just short the QQQs if you want to take a negative bet on tech? But it actually echoes what Kramer was saying last week, too, which is don't expect tech valuations to go back to what they were. And I think you can take that, like, don't expect the market to go back to what it was. And then you do need to look for the earlier comment um, on find things where there's new leadership. So, th- so there, there are things to do. Um, one thing where he, where Carl Icahn's saying, I'm still bearish, I'm very bearish. I think we need to really put parameters around comments like that. When he's very bearish, does he mean we're going back down to negative 26%? Or does he mean, like I had a call with one of my clients the other day who told me he's sure the Fed's breaking everything and the market's going down another 40%. Like, what are the parameters when we're talking about being in a bear market still, well, being bearish still? Well, I mean, Weiss is, is bearish. But by yeah. what magnitude, Weiss? Well, here's the magnitude. The bull case for the market over the last number of years was that money was free. And when money's free, when rates are low, multiples are higher. 100%. Right? So now you're going from basically zero to 5% Fed funds. Right. 
Right. So you've got to go back to a normalized multiple, which that? historically is 14 to 15 times. No, it isn't. So that's not true. It is. If you go long term, last 10 years, it was higher than that. But if you go back a longer term, 50 years, read it's Tom 14 or 15 times. You know I'm not reading Tom Lee, who's the perennial bull. But you know I mean, what? when it's dark well, out, on, he says on. it's going to be sunny in half, in half an hour. You got after you me. Know. You got after me about two months ago when we were right. going through the same kind of exercise. And I was saying, look, if you take 230 earnings and you put 17 times it and you said that's fuzzy math. And you know I, what? Did, I never said fuzzy. No, math. no, you did. You said you're using fuzzy math. And, and but it was you're right. But that's the point. It's all fuzzy Look, we, we, know, we don't know it's the point. It's all fuzzy. You might be right. We let, me, let me just finish. So I'm going to give you the final answer. So I think you get down to maybe 15 or 16 times, okay. and that's 3,200 in the S&P. Jenny, may I, please? Go for it. All right. Uh, you can discard Tom Lee for all you want, but these are the facts, okay? In the, late 19, in the whole late 1990s, the multiple on the market was 19 on a forward basis, and the 10-year averaged about 5%. I, you're smirking at the numbers, or you're I'm smirking, smirking at, at your conclusion? At your, at your selection of a time frame. Of the 1990s, of the whole decade, when yeah. the 10-year averaged 5% and we're That's at 4% right now? Look at what right happened now. at the end of the decade. You got, you got the NASDAQ up to, uh, for a brief period of time, of over 200 PE. So you're going to now give me averages that were based upon, again, a ridiculous okay, so I'm looking longer term. Steve, 19 so times out, is reasonable when interest rate volatility dies down, i.e. when the Not Fed when is it done dies down, rates. when rates are down. Okay, let's that do Guys, let's say we have disjointed periods. Then let's just throw history out. And let me ask you, Steve Weiss, if you have $230 earnings next year, what do you think is a fair multiple to pay with a 4.5% tenure? Uh, I, I reject, I reject the, your hypothesis because I don't see 230 next okay. year. What well, if I saw 230 next year, then I'd say we're not going to be in a recession and we'll be fine. But we are going to be in a recession and earnings will be low. So, well, I think it's a legitimate question, though. It's not guaranteed that we're going to no. have have a recession. And maybe some of the more negative views are too negative. So if we're so if we're 230 in earnings, I'd say maybe we can go down another couple hundred. But points. I'm saying what multiple are you? Let, let's leave history out and let's just say, OK, I'll tell you, I think paying 15 times a multiple on market earnings is fair. That's right? what I did. That's what I said. I just agree. might want to pay six. That's the long that term. 14 to 15, 14 and a half longer term. 15, I'm comfortable with. OK. I, I, here's you? here's where I think a mistake is being made in this discussion is looking at earnings as, as static. OK, I don't care if they're 200 or 230 next year. What I'm saying, and I feel very strongly about this second half of next year is going to be a heck of a lot better. And the run rate into 2024 is going to be a heck of a lot better than the run rate right now. And that multiple, when you're growing earnings, you can smirk all you want, I'm not friend. smirking. That I'm... multiple when earnings are growing is higher than when they're going down or when they're flat. That's just the way it works. Let me ask you this before we take, take a break. Playing off what Icon said about one of the reasons why he's negative the S&P and short it because of tech, which he thinks is still overvalued relative to where we are. Savita, a uh, subramanian over at Bank of America, says the leadership change from growth to value is, quote, still in the works. Uh, the rotation out of mega caps is not over. Now, maybe, you know, yesterday's a good example that you don't need mega caps for the market to go up, but you need mega caps for the market to go up in great magnitude. Is that fair to say? Fair. And fair do enough. we think, Jim, yeah. that she's right where the rotation out of mega caps is not over. 
Well, I agree with her on that. And you know I agree on the shift from growth to value leadership. But I think the math also kind of supports what you just said. Take a look at Apple as a bellwether fang name, a, a bellwether tech name. Um, the multiple right now is um, 24 times on a forward basis. I'm pretty close, whatever it says up there on the screen. Um, you know, that multiple is not going to expand in the current environment. Might right. even contract, but let's just assume that it stays constant. The long-term earnings growth rate projected by the analyst community on Apple is 11% going forward. So what you should expect is if the multiple stays constant, the share price goes up 11% a year. Hey, you know what? That's not bad, Scott. Actually, that really isn't bad. But the point that I've been making, and I, I think uh, uh, Ms. Subramanian is making as well, is that there's going to be higher growth rates outside of tech. In the industrials, as all this supply chain onshoring and infrastructure spending goes on, in the materials, et cetera. So you're going to have a higher earnings growth rate in those traditional value sectors, which are starting from a lower multiple to begin with. So you might actually get multiple expansion combined with higher earnings growth rate outside of tech. I, I do agree, though. You, you need and kind of want to see large cap tech do something on the positive Well, I mean, side. if you want the rally to have, you know, a considerable runway, it's kind of hard to imagine it having it without the participation. Yeah, or if you want to get to even higher levels, it seems almost, you know, implausible that you could um, without it. Yeah, I'm not, I guess I'm not hating point. on tech. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm not hating on tech. Yeah. I just see better value. All right, let me do this. Let, let's squeeze a break in, uh, if we could. Because coming up on this Veterans Day, as we honor those who have served this great country, Halftime Zone, Jim Labenthal, as we said, and Degas Wright, there are two of them. Degas joins us next. We're also going to be joined by SoFi CEO Anthony Noto. He's going to talk about his service, of course, the markets, what's happening in crypto. He used to be at Twitter, too. We're going to ask him about all of it, and we'll do it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Halftime Report honors all veterans on this day. Our very own Jim Liebenthal was a nuclear engineer and submarine officer in the United States Navy for seven years. And Degas Wright was an armored cavalry officer serving in the military for five years. He left the service with the rank of captain. We thank you for your service to this country. 
Yeah, we do indeed. Uh, Jim, we've certainly uh, spoken with you. And Degas, it's great to see you as always. Uh, this, it wouldn't be right if we didn't have you with us today on a day that I know you care about so very much. Thank you, Scott. And it's, it's great to be here with you and Jim. Well, it's great to have you. We do. Uh, we have something special uh, to do. We actually have some uh, viewer questions from veterans for you guys uh, about their portfolios and stocks. And I wanted to play a couple of them. Degas, for you first, why don't we take a listen? Good afternoon, halftime professionals. This is Master Sergeant Don Spinelli, U.S. Marine Corps retired, living here in beautiful Merida, Mexico. I'm interested in making an investment in the cybersecurity sector for my grandchildren's future. I like Palo Alto Networks. Do you think this is a good investment or do you have a better recommendation? Thank you for taking my question. All right, and thank you, Don, for your thank service. Thank you for your service, Master Go ahead, Degas. Uh, Master Sergeant, and what we will say is that the cybersecurity is growing at about 9% per year. And Palo Alto is moving towards a higher margin subscription business, and we see that that growth is going to be about 25% earnings each year. Now, one of the things that we're concerned about Palo Alto, that it just became profitable last quarter. So we prefer Fortinet that has been profitable since 2016. Okay. Uh, Farmer Jim, got a question for you from Ross Forney, who is a veteran. I have a small investment fund. I'm very new to this. Is it better to have a diversified portfolio or is it better to invest more in just one or two stocks? Okay, Mr. Forney, I'm, uh, thank you again for your service, and I'm glad you're getting started in investing. It's all of our goal to make sure that your experience as an investor uh, incentivizes you to continue and that you're encouraged. And in that light, I would suggest, you know, one to two stocks is too few. Any one of those stocks could go south and you could have a bad experience. I, I know you said you only have a small investment. Get started slowly. With, with small position sizes, but broaden that out to probably seven to ten names to begin with. That'll still give you some oomph for what you're doing, but it won't overexpose you in any one name. All right. I appreciate the questions, of course. Degas, it's good to see you. Thank you for being with us on this Veterans Day. And once again, thank you for your service to this great country. My pleasure. All right. We have another West Point grad with us today. SoFi CEO Anthony Noto. He was a captain in the Army, four years of service. It's a great tradition to have you on this day, Anthony, a day I know is so very uh, much important to you. Thank you, Scott, and thank you for having me. And, and uh, happy Veterans Day to all those great soldiers defending our country today and those that have in the past and, and those that have given the ultimate sacrifice. Yep. Well said, of course, and, and we share those sentiments, uh, of course. Um, let's talk markets, if we could, uh, Anthony, because we're at a at a unique uh, moment in time, and, and so many things have, have happened uh, over the last uh, week uh, minimum. Just first give me your thoughts on what we're witnessing in, in the crypto uh, market. I know that, that SoFi uh, does have crypto trading on the platform. I'm wondering how you're thinking about all of this now as the CEO of that, that organization. Sure. Um, we do offer the opportunity to buy and sell 30 different crypto coins. Uh, we partner with two um, crypto exchanges and custody uh, firms that are very different than FTX and have minimal to no exposure to FTX. Um, we go to great extents to ensure the safety and soundness of our company overall and, of course, the custody of our members' assets. So we feel good about our position there and have seen a lot of demand as people flock to a safer, you know, more um, secure uh, environment and one that's more established and durable as SoFi. So 
Uh, if people do have concerns, we've posted a very detailed explanation of what's happened with FTX and implications. Um, but again, we uh, we do provide that service on our platform and uh, we're a regulated bank and we have a responsibility to ensure our entire company has the right safety and soundness, uh, not just that product. I would also uh, make the point that when you buy or sell cryptocurrency on SoFi, uh, we put a warning there when you put in your trade that says this is a very risky asset. It's unproven. You could lose all of your money. And unfortunately, that's come to fruition in the last week uh, for many people. And uh, that's something that we do not take lightly as an industry. It's very unfortunate that we don't have the right regulation, the right risk managers at companies, that these types of things can happen for an emerging industry like cryptocurrency. Um, we believe in the long-term value of cryptocurrency and the opportunity that blockchain provides. Um, but everyone needs to understand it's it's unproven. It's highly risky, just like Internet stocks were back in the 90s. And people could lose all their money. So it should be a very small, small piece of what they invest if they choose to go down that path. You know, I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. Um, as I follow up, you said we have minimal to no exposure to, to FTX. What is the minimal? Yeah, SoFi has no exposure to FTX directly. Uh, we have two partners, uh, Coinbase and BitGo, uh, as well as Apex that we do custody and clearing with across a bunch of different assets. Um, one of those companies has a very tiny amount of exposure. I think it's less than $10 million. So just to be clear, it's not it's not something significant, but and it's not our assets. We just ask our counterparties what their exposures, if they have any. And um, I think one of them had a very minimal amount, which is immaterial. For gotcha. Them. Gotcha. I appreciate you clarifying that uh, for me. Um, has this episode at all caused you to rethink uh, even doing business in, in crypto for the time being? I, I know you guys, as SoFi, the official account, tweeted out yesterday, our goal is to provide members trading access to crypto with 100 percent transparency always. Do you feel like 100 percent transparency is achievable uh, in light of what we've just learned? Um, the, the counterparties in this particular case did not provide that transparency, and unfortunately, that's why people lost their money. Uh, we are a regulated bank. We have a responsibility to ensure our businesses are durable, regardless of what they are, whether they're in the bank or the bank holding company, and, and we've built our company that way. Unfortunately, some of these other providers have not, and what's worse is they didn't provide that transparency. Um, we will only do business with companies that provide us the transparency about their counterparty risks as well as their approach to ensuring safety and soundness. So um, we'll provide the transparency, but we don't regulate the industry and we could just be the gold standard that we hope other people copy. Yep. What about the hit to investor confidence? Um, certainly retail in investor uh, confidence, uh, obviously a, a tremendously large part of your investor base. Are you worried about the, the longer term ramification or maybe even the more near term ramifications and what that could mean for your business? I think it just highlights what we've already said to investors, that this is a highly risky asset. Um, we as a company, it's a very, very small cryptocurrency fees or a very, very small percent of our overall revenue. We reported our sixth consecutive quarter of record revenue uh, in Q3 at $419 million. Um, the amount of revenue that we generated that was related to cryptocurrency in any way was tiny uh, relative to that $419 million. So. Uh, it shouldn't change anyone's confidence in SoFi. We're building a durable, safe company. Um, we have to manage our risks and make sure that we disclose them, which we do in our, in our filings. You know, if I recall correctly, I mean, you used the analogy back to 2000 
in terms of the risk uh, that is assumed in investing in, in some respects in, in crypto like it was in investing in uh, Internet stocks back in the, in the late 90s. You were an analyst of of uh, of those kinds of stocks back in the day. Is that the closest reminder that this episode um, brings us to? The, the late 90s and the blow up in, in 2000 of highly speculative parts of the market. Is, is this, do you think, the closest thing that we can think back to? And because you, you used to wear a hat that had a pretty good seat to it. I think it does. The, that period of time from the mid 90s to the mid 2000s does provide a lot of examples of what we're seeing here today. Uh, there are companies that had revenue um, that was not durable, that was not sustainable because it was revenue from companies that were losing money and companies that were not funded to a path to profitability. Uh, there are other companies that had relationships that weren't disclosed, um, related party transactions. And again, those revenue streams weren't durable. Um, so there are some patterns that are similar to today. First and foremost, a company has to be well capitalized. It has to be capitalized enough to get to profitability because financing won't always be there. And what we saw in that time period is the financing went away, those companies that were not profitable, that hadn't built a sustainable model that could get to profitability uh, went out of business. And in fact, many of them have been replicated uh, in the most recent years uh, and become tens of billions of dollars in terms of market capitalization. So I wouldn't say it's an exact um, replica of what happened during that time period, but there are definitely uh, patterns that are very similar and a good overlay to use as a lens about companies today. Yeah, I mentioned, you know, some of your prior experience. I mean, you do have a long and distinguished resume, of course, one of which being the former Twitter COO and CFO. What do you make of the chaos over the last couple of weeks there? I think Twitter has um, unbelievable potential. It has the, in my mind, the best content in the world, and it pays largely nothing for that content. If you want to see what's happening in the world, it's a place that can provide that opportunity. The challenge has always been, how do you make the product a mass market product? How do you make it so easy to use? It's like turning on the television and you can see what's happening simply by hitting a switch to turn on, as opposed to having to know the language of Twitter, the at uh, symbol, the hashtag. How do you know who to follow? Um, how do you actually program it so it's easy for you to use? And so the opportunity is to take the best content in the world um, that's on that platform that's largely for free and develop a product that makes it simple and easy to use. I think it can have more users than um, any other social network or information network. I think it can have billions of daily active users um, and correspondingly generate hundreds of uh, millions, hundreds of billions of dollars of value. It's going to take a lot of iteration, a lot of testing and a lot of experimentation. Innovation is not driven by one great idea. Innovation is driven by an idea that you iterate on over and over and over again and learning from that, which is what we deploy at SoFi, and that leads to innovation. So I think there's going to be a lot of testing, there's going to be a lot of innovation, and that's going to result in a lot of controversy as we're seeing, but that's what it takes to build something that's worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And you think Musk and team can do that? I'm not commenting on their ability one way or the other. I'm just commenting on the opportunity that I've seen there since uh, I've built my relationship with the company over the last uh, decade plus. I don't know if you'll comment or not, but I'm curious enough to ask you anyway. Have you had any conversation with Musk about any ideas that you may have? Uh, I, do, I do not have any communication with, uh, with Elon Musk. Okay. Uh, Anthony, I'm going to leave it there. I so much appreciate you being with us. Uh, what's become a tradition every Veterans Day is we salute you and all those, all those who have served this country. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right. That's Anthony Noto, CEO of SoFi. Coming up, we've got the very latest on the FTX fallout. We're back on the half right after this. What does it mean to be rich? 
Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Halftime. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is our CNBC News update at this hour. Ukrainian citizens in the southern city of Kherson are welcoming soldiers back after months of Russian occupation. Russian forces pulled out of the city earlier this week in a rapid retreat. Kherson is the only major city that Russia was able to consistently hold since its invasion began in February. And experts say losing grip on the region is a major blow to both Moscow and Putin. A South Korean police official who was being investigated in connection with a deadly Halloween crowd crush was found dead in his apartment earlier today. Local news agencies report there was no suicide note found with the body. The official had faced accusations of deleting warnings about the dangers of the crowded holiday celebrations that resulted in the death of more than 150 people. And climate protesters in Norway have been arrested after attempting to glue themselves to the famous painting, The Scream. This comes as protesters across the world have targeted other famous paintings. The Scream was not damaged in the ordeal. A halftime report returns right after this. All right, welcome back. Sam Bankman-Fried stepping down as FTX CEO as his crypto exchange files for bankruptcy today. Our Kate Rooney's been following this story from the beginning, has the very latest. Kate? Hi there, Scott. That's right. FTX went from a $32 billion company to bankruptcy in a matter of just four days or so. Sam Bankman-Fried is stepping down as CEO. The 30-year-old will stay on through the Chapter 11 transition. He tweeted this morning. He says, I'm really sorry again that we ended up here. Hopefully things can find a way to recover, and this can bring some amount of transparency, trust, and governance to customers. He also says he was shocked to see things unravel the way they did earlier this week. This bankruptcy filing includes Bankman-Fried's quant trading firm Alameda Research and 134 affiliated companies all over the world. You've got places like Nigeria and Uganda, South Africa, to Europe, Hong Kong, and Switzerland. The estimated liabilities stand at between $10 billion to $50 billion. FTX also has more than 100,000 creditors, according to these documents. It was a stunning reversal for Sam Bankman-Fried. He had been bailing others out in the industry this year. One of those companies, BlockFi, pausing withdrawals overnight. We also heard from Anthony Scaramucci, an FTX investor. Bankman-Fried had also made an investment in his fund, Skybridge, earlier this year. He was in Nassau with Bankman-Fried earlier this week as all of this unraveled. Here's what he said earlier on Squawk Box. When I got to the Bahamas, it became clear, at least from some of the people that worked on the legal team uh, and the compliance team, that perhaps there was more going on than it being a rescue situation. So when I left the Bahamas in the afternoon, I was actually distressed. I don't want to call it fraud at this moment because that's actually a legal term uh, and none of us know, uh, and we have to leave it up to the regulators. Two sources now tell me the Department of Justice is looking into FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried and Fundstrat out with a note to clients in the last hour or so saying it's appropriate to wait for lower lows in crypto prices. They say there will be other casualties, which could be could lead to forced selling or headline risk. They also go on to say if we learned anything from the other credit crises this year, 
It's that sometimes it takes a little while to find out where the bodies are buried, as they put it, Scott. Yeah. Back to you. All right, Kate. Thank you. That's Kate Rooney. I should also let you know, speaking of Fundstrat, look, Tom Lee has suggested that Bitcoin was going to go to 100000 He's going to be on with me later today in overtime. So we're going to discuss this situation along with the markets, which he's obviously been bullish on, too. And we'll do that a little later in overtime. Mike Santoli is with us next for his Midday Word. All right, we're back. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli. There he is from the New York Stock Exchange for his midday word this Friday. Uh, all right, so the day, the day after uh, this massive rally, and we got a little FTX sentiment way, I think, today. Bond markets closed. What are you thinking about where we're at? You know, the market is still uh, kind of differentiating. I, I, even after yesterday's pop, it's not as if there's a broad pullback. Um, the Dow decline, to me, reflects the selling of the year-to-date winners in an aggressive way today uh, and in buying the laggards. So you look at healthcare, UNH is basically the main weight on the Dow Industrials today. But uh, defense stocks are for sale today, broadly healthcare as well, and insurance. All huge outperformers this year, and they're buying kind of the discarded, junkier uh, tech stuff and consumer discretionary. So to me, that's investors positioning for if this rally is going to have a little bit more life, I don't own enough risk. And there's a little bit of a grab for uh, for beta. Uh, yep, everybody knows 5% one-day gains like we got yesterday mostly occur on ongoing bear markets when the market has been in a downtrend. But they also are, are features of, you know, a market kind of racing higher off of a low when you've already seen uh, the worst of it. You don't know until uh, we get there a few months from now which this might be. Uh, but I do think people are at least trying to balance out their bets in case this wasn't just a flash in the pan. Yeah. Um, I mean, then look, the, even even the negative people, uh, Mike, are, are realizing the potential of momentum carrying this for for weeks, whether it's, you know, sure. Minard is not exactly Mr. Positive on the market and he's out and he's once again tweeting as we're having this conversation, stay fully invested. You know, this thing, these are my words, this could have some legs into the end and the beginning of the year, as he told me yesterday. Right. And I, I think maybe for more people, it's don't be too underinvested because you really have had cash levels build up to a fair degree, not necessarily to historic peaks, but people have been on the defensive. They've assumed that rallies are to be sold and maybe this one will be, too. But it doesn't mean uh, we're at that point yet. There's nothing that's gone on in the last few months that's completely incompatible with a market that's attempting you know, to bottom. But a lot of things have to fall into place on inflation and how the Fed responds to that uh, inflation path and, and all the rest of it that we've been talking about all year. By the way, on the FTX issue and, and you know, crypto going down again, you're starting to see a decoupling a little bit in some of the stocks that have most closely tracked crypto, like an NVIDIA. Uh, so keep an eye on that as well. All right. All right, Michael, see you in a bit. That's Mike yeah. Santoli. Stay with us. We have uh, trades on some of the day's biggest stock calls. We'll do that next. All right, let's hit our calls of the day. Intel today double downgraded to underweight at J.P. Morgan. The price target to 32 from 64. Jenny, you own it now. After their most recent earnings report, I think it's fair to say you felt pretty vindicated that maybe this was the beginning of a new era for Intel. 
I think that as an investor, I think that's putting way too much optimism onto how I felt. Really? I've always thought that the stock is severely undervalued, but I don't think a new era like that, you know, to me, that's a little too rosy. So, as you know, we've held this position for a long time, okay. like a 1% position. If I thought it was a new era, maybe I would have increased the position back up to 3%. Okay. But do I feel as fine about Intel now as I have then, even though we're down so much? Yes. And so here's where I, what I think of this report. You need to be really careful when you see a report that says double downgrade. Let's remember, first of all, that this analyst a year ago had a $78 price target on it. So now they've got a $32 price target. Let's start today with Intel. What do you have? You have a stock that is going to make money, right, is probably going to grow earnings in the future. And unlike AMD, I can make an argument for modest multiple expansion here as things continue to get better. An interesting thing that we were thinking about with respect to this is it took Lisa Sue four years to turn around AMD. Pat Gelsinger's in early stages of turning Intel around. So I think there is optimism and reason to stick with the position rather than sell it. But we're not so optimistic that we're like doubling or tripling down. Um, but do we want to continue to hold it? Yes. And do I think that Intel will grow into functional earnings and get a reasonable multiple in the future? Yes, I do. Do you want to go with this one? He feels sorry for me for owning it. I, I, Let's just put that no, look, I mean, look, I got to admit, I'm so happy not being in this stock. I've been in your seat for, for years, and it's, it's oh. just so unpleasant. But, but to be constructive here, I don't think Intel is headed for the dustbin of history. Not no, at all, Jenny. Not at all. And from my perspective, I think there will be a time that I'm in the name with you. I just, I've got to wait for the turn. I see declining revenues. I see all the negativity out there, and I, I just want to wait for the turn before getting in. I hear you. All right, we'll do final trades next. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. All right, overtime tonight. I mentioned Tom Lee is going to join us. Look, he's been bullish on stocks. And we are going to talk about that move we had yesterday, what, what it means moving forward. I read at the top of our program today, that he thinks it can carry further. We'll find out how much further uh, from him. He's been a Bitcoin bull as well, and we will discuss what's going on in that universe with Tom Lee, some other good guests too, and I hope all of you will join me on this Friday late afternoon in overtime. Farmer Jim, you got a final trade? I do. Uh, General Motors, I uh, forget who upgraded it today, but somebody gave it an upgrade, and they said what we all know, right? The legacy business, the internal combustion engine business is going gangbusters, and the uh, electric vehicle and autonomous vehicle business is gravy on top of that. So I'll close by saying this. What if we don't have a recession, okay? And the stock's trading at 90% of book value and six times earnings. Think about that. Okay. Steve Weiss? I'm going to think about it. Uh, my final trade is GX. You got all winners in your book, dude? Of course he does. No, I'm not saying that. I'm gonna. Th he asked me to think about it. I'm gonna think about it and thank you for your All right, service. Well, I thought about it. Okay. And I thought about that saying that. Okay, I thought about it. I'm not gonna do it, Jim. Perhaps. Okay, GXO Logistics. They reported the quarter this week, 16% organic revenue growth. It's selling less than six times EBITDA in next year's multiple. It's compellingly cheap and has been beaten up like all of Jimmy's stocks. We haven't. We haven't talked about. You also bought Google, right? Alphabet. I did as a trade. I still think over the intermediate term, there's going to be... Wasn't everything you bought that I mentioned as a trade? I mean... No, I, I added some long-term positions. You B &A, did? AGS, yes. I read a whole list of things. Those were all long-term positions? Yeah. Um, Come on, my man. You want to bring it to others. Now you got to face the music, bro. I'm facing it. Uh, you know, I, hey, look, as I said, 
The guys that are buying all the real estate are traders. You know, it's uh, okay. Ken Griffin, it's Dave Tepper, it's uh, all right, all right. You know, okay, I mean, just want to know what field we're playing. I want to give Jenny some. Jenny, time. no, Jenny's final trade. Go ahead. All right, since I refuse to be put in a bull or bear camp, and I still want to make money, I'm giving you national retail properties, five percent dividend okay. yield. Okay, let's leave it there. Years of increasing the dividend. Great, excellent. Veterans Day. Thank you, brother. Thinking about you, bro. Thank you. Okay, that does it for us. The exchange now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.